Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. Hope you all bundled up this morning. It is chilly outside. I'm looking for my sweaters and just found this coat instead. Turn with me to Mark's Gospel. We're in chapter 10. My name is Robert. I realize that it is 105 degrees out. Uh, I am one of the pastors here and uh, glad to see you with us this morning as we study God's Word. We've been working through various passages in the Gospels uh, looking at encounters that people have had with Jesus and what it looks like to follow Jesus. And this morning in particular, as we look at Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52, we'll be studying the um, uh, account of Jesus' interaction with a blind man named Bartimaeus. And truly, in, in Mark's gospel, the way he's laid his gospel out, this interaction with Bartimaeus it comes right before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is really the final moment in his gospel, anyway, where he communicates to us what it looks like to follow Jesus. What are the qualifications? What are the criteria? And what's a good example of following him? Chapter 10 is filled with stories like this, but it concludes here with Bartimaeus and a look at this man who, despite his blindness, actually sees Jesus better than anyone else on the road. I want to read the passage in a moment, but first I want to pray for us and we'll get into it. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would bless our reading of it and hearing of it. I pray that you would encourage us by it so that we would be faithful followers of Christ and that we might urge others and call others to take heart and follow him as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 46, I'll read make a few comments perhaps, and then I want to point out a couple of things to you from this passage. Mark chapter 10, verse 46 begins, They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, that's what Bartimaeus means, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, that is Jesus, on the way. Now, it was not an uncommon thing for people to beg along the side of major roadways like one leading into and out of a town like Jericho. What was uncommon about this story, though, is the way Bartimaeus approaches Jesus and the boldness with which he comes to him 
And there are two things that I want to highlight for us in this text this morning. The first is the faith of Bartimaeus. If Mark is showing us what it means to follow Jesus, Bartimaeus is a prime example of exactly how to do that very thing. But not only do I want to look at the faith of Bartimaeus, I want us to consider the mercy of Christ, the mercy that he displays to Bartimaeus in this moment. First, let's look at his faith, though. What sets Bartimaeus' faith apart? What sets it apart? What distinguishes it? There are a few things that I uh, just noticed reading this passage. There may be more elements to it, but I think, number one, more than anything else, Bartimaeus, he knows Jesus' identity as well as, if not better than, anybody else on the road with Jesus. Bartimaeus sees Jesus for who he is, and, and there is a real irony here because he is blind. And yet, of all the people on this road, he knows who Jesus is. And and we get a glimpse of this because of how he speaks of Jesus and of how he speaks to him. He begins, and actually says this twice in verses 47 and 48, he calls Jesus the son of David, which is an exceptionally rare way to refer to Jesus in the Gospels. And especially in Mark's Gospel, there's really, I think, only one other place where this happens. And yet Bartimaeus, he knows who Jesus is. He hears Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and instantly he recognizes this is the son of David. Now, why does that matter? Well, David is the prototypical king of Israel. David had his flaws, certainly. They were well documented. But the son of David was understood to be a messianic figure, a king coming to redeem God's people from sin, to redeem God's people, especially from occupation, from wicked pagan nations. The son of David is a title reserved for the king of kings, for the savior of God's people, for the anointed one of God. For Bartimaeus to refer to Jesus this way, there's no mistaking how he sees Jesus, what he understands Jesus' role to be, not just for him, but for all of God's people. I think it's interesting as well to consider one of the most well-known stories in the life of King David, Jesus' ancestor. If you recall, in, in the Old Testament, King David, after he vanquishes, or really takes over the kingdom from Saul, after Saul is finally fully defeated, among the people that come to David are, uh, well, is a, a young man, who is unable to walk. His name is Mephibosheth. He is actually the grandson of King Saul, the son of Jonathan. Now, David loved Jonathan like a brother. He cared very much about members of Saul's family. But for David to show any sort of mercy to Mephibosheth would be really unexpected. And yet that's exactly what happens in this Old Testament story. David shows Mephibosheth not just mercy, but he welcomes Mephibosheth, this man who has nothing to offer to him. Uh, This man who, by virtue of his own bloodline, should rightly be destroyed. And yet David welcomes him in, not just into into his palace, but into his dining room where they would eat regularly together. David extends fellowship to Mephibosheth. You just can't help but wonder if Bartimaeus here is even remembering 
this story as he thinks of himself, somebody who is at a severe disadvantage before Jesus, calling out to the son of David. Not only does he call Jesus son of David, he he calls him master. Now, in in the ESV, he he calls out, he he says in verse 51, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. But a lot of translators and Bible scholars will tell you that the word for rabbi that is translated here into rabbi in like our English standard or in the NIV, it doesn't really do it justice because this term is is a bit more rare than that. In fact, the term itself has more reverence behind it. It it's really probably better translated something akin to master. Bartimaeus, he looks to Jesus, the son of David. He, he calls him master with all the reverence that is in his heart. He knows who Jesus is. He sees himself rightly relative to, to Jesus in his grandeur and majesty and glory. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah 35, starting in verse 3. And tell me if if this doesn't sound familiar. This is a word of the prophet Isaiah. It says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. As you read that, you can't help but wonder if if Bartimaeus even has this passage in his mind. Here's the son of David, come fulfilling all the prophetic visions of men like Isaiah and others who looked ahead towards this messianic king who would come and redeem his people, even giving sight to the blind and leading them on the way of holiness, grabbing them off the side of the road and pulling them along with him on the way to God's place. The story definitely fleshes that out. Bartimaeus truly sees Jesus rightly. He doesn't merely look to Jesus as a healer, though certainly that's part of what's going on here, but he he sees in Jesus the only hope and Savior for God's people. Not only does he know Jesus well, not only does he he know who Jesus truly is, but but he, he persists in calling out to Jesus despite incredible opposition. Now let's remember here, here is a man who is on the side of the road. He is begging along with probably many other people. He's calling out, he's being loud, maybe even some would say sort of obnoxious. 
and he's a blind man, which in many cultures even today is considered to be a, a sort of curse from the Lord, but especially then it was oftentimes viewed as the consequences of sin, whether the sin of the person who was blind or the sin of their parents, which led them to be born blind. It would have been a very easy thing for everyone to see Bartimaeus and immediately write him off because this man, for one reason or another, is not worthy of the typical means of being able to see or hear or speak or walk. This man is one of those types of people. And let's keep him to the side because Jesus has bigger, more important things to attend to. There are many reasons why they rebuke him, as the scripture tells us. But Barnabas, he, he persists. He doesn't just know who Jesus is. He acts on it. He cries out. And he doesn't just cry out once, but he, he cries out all the more when he is rebuked. In the face of all of this opposition, he doesn't shrink back. He doesn't cower in fear and hide. He he actually leans in, he raises his voice, he speaks, he, he looks for Jesus as much as he can, and, and he wants to make sure that Jesus knows that he's there. He, he doesn't hold back. He acts without hesitation. Think of all the reasons he would have to hesitate. He can't see. For him to get up and walk towards Jesus as he does here is an incredible act of faith you understand that for him to stand up throw aside his cloak and go towards Jesus and even for him to call out towards Jesus having only heard that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by he's really facing some obstacles and then you factor in the crowded streets. I mean, there's so many people following Jesus from place to place, right? They're, they're following him closer and closer to Jerusalem, and the crowds are mounting, and more and more people are lining up behind Jesus to see what amazing thing he'll do next, what crazy thing he'll say next, how many people he'll offend next. There's so many crowds, and not only is he blind, not only does he have to face these crowded streets, but, but you put these things together, and this crowd itself is opposed to him because of his blindness. It's, it's a chastening example. Just as I read this, I, I cannot help but, but, but think that here is a man who, who knows exactly what he wants. He's not beating around the bush. He's not hemming and hawing, waiting for just the right moment to... No, 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 no. He knows exactly what he wants, and he, he sees his opportunity. He, he doesn't just see an opportunity, though. He knows whom he's addressing. And he has no doubts whatsoever about the authority of Christ. He knows to whom he is speaking. And therefore, because he knows what he wants, and because he knows whom he's addressing, he has every reason to be confident, and he exudes confidence here. There is nothing for him to be afraid of. He knows that. We call this faith. I mean, he, he leans in towards Christ. And it, it makes me wonder, even as I look at my own heart, and I look at myself, or as I think about just us as a church, what, what is it that, that causes us to maybe withhold ourselves from the Lord a little bit? Or maybe a lot. How, how do you justify your own slowness 
to approaching Christ. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever recognize in yourself a tendency not to run towards the Lord, but actually to shrink back, maybe to, to cover yourself, to hide yourself a little bit, maybe to lower your voice, maybe even not to speak to him at all, because there, there are various reasons why you would rather not have that interaction. And yet, here Bartimaeus, he, he has every reason to shrink back and hide himself, and yet he leans in and cries out all the more to the Lord, the son of David. Are you afraid that by going to the Lord, you will actually do things the wrong way? Is that, is that what holds you back? Or maybe you're not convinced of your need for him in the first place. Are, you, are we too prideful or afraid of looking needy in some way? Bartimaeus, he, he, gives, he, 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 erases, he erases all those excuses that we might have. Let me be clear that the things that hold us back from approaching Christ, they don't just go away when we turn to him the first time. Right? These are things that very often we still cling to even as we have gotten on the road to follow Jesus ourselves. It's important for us to always be aware, where am I maybe holding back from the Lord where, where he would beckon me instead to lean in and approach him asking for mercy rather than fearing retribution? Here's the key for Bartimaeus. Here's the key. He, he knows who Jesus is. We've established that. And, and he knows exactly what he wants and what he needs. He sees himself uh, in this way. But I want to see something more, that, that he also humbles himself before Christ. Right? He, he's bold. He's confident. There's no doubting those things. But he's also very humble before the Lord. I want you to look at the way he asks Jesus to heal him. I mean, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And that, that's, a, that's a pretty incredible request to make of anybody. I can't see. Can you help me to do that? Uh, not, not every day people make that request of anyone. It's not every day that people make that request of Jesus. You may, you may see this and think, well, that doesn't seem like a very humble request. But you've got to understand, he knows who he's talking to. He knows all the things that, that are maybe on the table. I want you to consider that in Mark's gospel alone, here are some things that people have indicated to Jesus they want from him or they expect his kingdom to be like. For example, in chapter 10, verses 22 and 23, we hear of a rich man who is unable to follow Jesus because Jesus upends his expectation that he can follow him and bring all of his wealth and stuff. The rich man is unable to follow Jesus because he loves wealth too much. I want you to think in chapter 10, verse 37. You notice this is all happening in the same chapter. James and John, they approach Jesus, and clearly they want to be seated at his right hand as he enters into his kingdom. They want power. They want glory. But Jesus says, you don't, you don't have a clue what you're asking for. You, you don't know actually what you're talking about. That's not really what my kingdom is like. That's not what it's like to be a subject, a, a citizen of my kingdom. Even, even earlier in the gospel, in chapter 8, Peter, having just revealed the real nature, the identity of Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, moments later, as Jesus explains to Peter and the other disciples exactly what that means, including his own death and 
and burial, Peter takes Jesus aside and says, that cannot possibly be, be right. Jesus, you're wrong about that. I don't know. You need to stop talking about these things. You're starting to scare the other disciples. And Jesus, of course, famously tells Peter to get behind him as though he himself is acting on satanic impulses. The, the, the glory that, that Peter wants to see Jesus have is not the actual glory of the kingdom of God. My point is, whether it is wealth, whether it is power, whether it is glory, there are all sorts of things that people have come to Jesus looking for in this gospel. And yet here's a man who simply acknowledges that, that his greatest need I just want to see. Can you just help me to see? Can you, can you give me the, just the, the normal abilities that, that so many people around me have? I just want to see. I just want to be made whole. See, he knows his need. It's not just to see. But, but he wants a, a wholeness a completion that really only comes from Christ, the son of David. He knows his brokenness. He has no trouble seeing that. He needs Jesus to remedy all of this. And, and so related to this, I want us to see not just his humble request, but also his humble theology. We've said this a hundred times. Son of David, have mercy on me. I would ask you, what, what else is there? What more could he say in this moment? What more does he need to store away in his mind so that he can follow Christ truly and fully? Is there really anything more to the gospel than crying out along these lines, Son of David, have mercy on me? There's really nothing else to the gospel but that. That's, that's really one of the things that is so beautiful about this story is, is that Jesus himself vindicates this man's faith. He says in verse 52, your faith has made you well. And of course, the way we think of being made well, we automatically go towards physical healing. But you notice, Jesus said, says this before the man gets his sight. In fact, even the wording, your faith has made you well, that, that phrase, made you well, there's so many ways you could translate that, and very often it has an extra connotation to it of salvation itself. You could very easily translate this, your faith has saved you. Bartimaeus knows who Jesus is, he knows what he needs, and Jesus vindicates this little mustard seed of faith that Bartimaeus has. And he says, brother, your, your faith has saved you. Not just, not just physically. That's, that's not all that you need. But there, there is a wholeness to what Jesus does for him that goes far beyond the ability to see. I think it's worth meditating on just the simplicity of his doctrine here for a second. That, Son of David, have mercy on me. That's it. That's all he's got. And I wonder how easy it is for us at times to just accumulate words and catchphrases and ways of thinking and speaking and doctrines and books and, and theology and, 
and so many sermons and podcasts and, and studies to be a part of. And, oh, you go there. Well, I don't go there. Well, you do that. Well, I don't do that. You know? And we just build up all these things around us that kind of insulate us from really actually having to wrestle with who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And, and yet here, Bartimaeus, he sums it all up. He says, son of David, have mercy on me. That's it. That is the sum of his theology. And we can say there certainly, there certainly is more in the gospel. There's more in scripture that we could talk about. But is there really anything less? No. Now this, is, this is the core, this is the essence of what Jesus has come to do. Let's take care not to complicate the gospel by emphasizing what we get right over and against who Jesus is. Just, just think, just pause, just stop for a second. Have you ever just, just really thought about the, just how simple the gospel is? I mean, just, son of David, have mercy on me. What a beautiful thing. The Lord has given us a, a good news that can be summed up in, in less characters than, than a tweet. You think about all the ways we want to pile upwards, and yet the Lord has given us something that even a child can understand. That anyone with even a semblance of recognition of their own brokenness and frailty can understand. We need mercy. When we come to the Lord, we, we don't bring anything. And, and we throw ourselves at his feet and, and we ask him to simply make us whole, to renew us, to, to accomplish the ends of his creation that Adam and Eve threw away and that we've inherited ever since. Do you live like you need mercy from King Jesus? This is how we follow him. This is what it means to follow him. Which leads me to the second thing that I want us to see. We've looked at Bartimaeus' faith. I want us to look at the mercy of Christ. The mercy of Christ in this story, it's so clear. He welcomes the feeble and broken. And he compels them to, as the text says, take heart. And this welcome that he offers, this, this gracious reception that he gives to Bartimaeus, it, it coordinates salvation, not just of his physical needs, but of his, or really of his whole person, of his whole life. Now look, physical healing is certainly among the things that the Lord has accomplished through his son Jesus, certainly in eternity. And even sometimes we get glimpses of that in the here and now, as the Lord brings about healing through various means among his people and even just around the world through, through those uh, who don't even necessarily trust in him. But at the heart of this narrative, there's a spiritual renewal that takes place. We're meant to understand that there is more than blindness at stake here, right? Jesus says, your faith has saved you, not merely given you sight, it reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, in which Paul says, If in Christ we have hope, in this life only we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, of course, there he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus, but I think the point 
echoes true through this narrative as well. Our hope is not just in this life, is it? Our hope can't possibly just be in, in some semblance of fallen wholeness in this life. We're awaiting something bigger, something fuller, something more permanent and final, and that is the salvation that Jesus himself offers from sin, from death and hell and all of its consequences. And so on the one hand, Jesus, he treats Bartimaeus and his physical need, but he also offers something more. Now, I do want to pause here and just just talk for a second about the incredible example that Jesus gives us here for how, uh, in, in how he treats Bartimaeus. I think it can be easy to read stories like this and immediately jump to more spiritual, allegorical, abstract ideas. But don't overlook how Jesus welcomes this man. Don't overlook the fact that Jesus calls this blind man to come to him and how he does this. He treats Bartimaeus with dignity. He doesn't just say, get over here. All right, what do you want? He says, what, what do you want me to do for you? you know, I, I recognize that you are a human being made in God's image, and I, I want to serve you. How can I do that? You put this in contrast with the, the crowd that has spent the last however many minutes rebuking him as he cries out. And, and Jesus stands in such stark contrast with the compassion that he shows to this man, who has probably not received a whole lot of compassion in his life. It, it brings this man from being on the side of the road to being in the middle of the crowd following Jesus. Do you notice that? He goes from being on the side of the road to being on the road because of Jesus' invitation and welcome to him. Now, that's how Jesus treats Bartimaeus. And, and, and lest we think that that really only applies to him, we need to remember that all of us, anyone who comes to Christ, comes to him as a fallen image bearer. We are all the refuse, the dregs of the fall. That, that is all of our stories. And we all find brokenness in a million different ways in each of our lives, in each of our homes, in each of the places where we live and work and, and move about. That's how we all come to him. We're always coming to Christ in weakness, not just, not just at the beginning, all the time. This side of eternity, we, we're always approaching him from a state of weakness. And, and just like Bartimaeus, it's true for any one of us, the, the, the fear of rejection and of judgment is, is a strong obstacle that that needs to be overcome for us to approach God. But how, how can we overcome this fear of rejection and judgment from the throne of God when we, like Bartimaeus, rightly assess who we are? When we, when we see ourselves as sinners before a holy and righteous God, we, we are right to fear his judgment. So how, how are we supposed to approach him? Well, this is what Jesus came to do. Do you see this? Do you see this fleshed out in this story? Jesus overwhelms the fear that we rightly have towards the Lord by what he offers. And so I, I just want to point your attention to Mark chapter 6, verse 50. As Jesus is walking on the water, 
across the, the lake, and his disciples are in the boat, and they see this, and they're afraid. They think they're seeing a ghost. This is another moment in Mark's gospel where that phrase, take heart, is used, and Jesus says it this time. And they all saw him, and they were terrified, but immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Hebrews 13, 6 likewise says this, that we can confidently say in a, in a taking heart sort of way, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Jesus beckons people to come to him to, to take heart because he is the one who offers healing and wholeness of all the things that make us broken and especially of our sin. Jesus is the one who mends all of this and restores us to the Lord, reconciles us to God. And we need to recognize this as we approach him. And that, that is where our confidence comes from. That's what allows us to joyfully spring up from the roadside and follow him down the road because he beckons us and he tells us to take heart. I, I want to, at this point, though, not overlook this one fact. Do you notice how Jesus calls this man to himself? Don't miss the means by which Jesus calls Bartimaeus. Did you catch it? Does Jesus actually tell Bartimaeus to take heart? Implicitly, he's behind that message, but that's not, he doesn't say that. You know, Bartimaeus is shouting out to Jesus. Jesus is at least close enough to hear him saying this, and yet Jesus doesn't shout back to Bartimaeus, get over here. He doesn't, he doesn't say that. Instead, he looks to the people who are following him. He commands his followers to call and invite Bartimaeus to come speak to Jesus. He commands his followers to call and invite the overlooked and the outcast. And he, he's always done that. He beckons them to go toward this man, not past him, to seek him, not to avoid and shun him. This is a, a tremendous point for us to apply, just as we, as we conclude our meditation on this passage. Jesus beckons people to himself, oftentimes, maybe even primarily, through, through the means of his saints, through the means of his people. Do you, do you realize, I mean, just, just think about it. Take a step back, think about the way that our culture tends to work, the kinds of people that are valued, and how, how much of a premium is placed on gathering people around you who benefit you in some way. You know? I mean, our culture is based on the idea that you might take a picture with somebody important and post that online, right? Nobody's posting pictures of themselves with unimportant people. And, and, and so here, Jesus, it's, it's so countercultural what he's, what he's getting them to do. It's so countercultural what he calls his, his disciples to do today, which is to go to people who have limited access to Christ whether it is physical or, or even cultural disadvantages, the Lord beckons his people to be the harbingers, not of, not of judgment or retribution, but of hope and of joy in him. I think this is particularly 
visible when, when God's people are the ones who go towards those who have special needs or other types of disabilities. And I just want to, you know, at this point, just kind of mention and thank the buddies in our own church who make this their regular mission every Sunday to pair up with children in our midst who have special needs. It may, it may seem like just a convenience to offer families, and it certainly is, and we're thankful for that. But that ministry is, is an extension of the ministry and compassion of Christ, of, of reaching out to those who, who are very easily tucked aside in a corner and instead welcoming them in to hear the simple gospel message the mercy of Jesus who cares deeply about people who have found themselves on the wrong side of the fall. And that's, that's everybody's story. And, and, and Christians of all people should be the ones who are able to go and, and convey that. And it's not just people who have disabilities. It is people who are strangers and outsiders to just traditional Christian values. Whether it is just not speaking the same language, I mean, think of the Derringers, their work to, to go and bring the Bible to people who do not have it in their language. That's, that's what the gospel calls us to do. But you think about, too, how we gather together on a Sunday morning, or, are we eager to welcome people who maybe don't quite see, the same, see things the same way that we do? You see, just, there's so much opportunity here for God's people to, to bear witness to the gospel and, and how counterintuitive it is to the mindset of so many in our day that would rather prize the seemingly valuable people and shun those who bring nothing to the table. Christians can be the people who, this is actually how the gospel goes forward, who, who share, who delight to bring the gospel to those who, who otherwise are not going to know. So, I want to conclude with this question. Are we guides to Christ or are we obstacles? Are we guides to Christ or are we obstacles? This is more than just getting out of the way, but we're talking about being a positive catalyst for faith in other people. Uh, this is an embarrassing story. Um, not long ago, I was in the grocery store, and I was standing on the chips aisle, as one does, and a woman approached me, which doesn't happen all that often in public, and she said something to me. She began her sentence with, sir, could you? And I just kind of, I don't know, I put up these barriers, because I was like, man, I, you know, what are you, what are you asking me? I said, no, I don't, I, I don't work here. I'm sorry. And then, like, seconds later, as she kept staring at me, and her eyes blinked, like, what just happened? And it's like her words suddenly hit me, and, and she had simply said, could you reach this bag of chips? I can't reach them. <laughs> and in that moment, I said, oh, indeed, I can do that. You don't have to have a grocery store license to pick up chips. Would you like two bags? Are we obstacles to people following Jesus? Or do we get in the way? Or, or instead, can we, can we be an actual, like, a positive 
catalyst for them to receive what it is that they need. The mercy of Christ propels his followers to be merciful as well. Have we forgotten that we too are recipients of mercy? Let's pray. Father, we, we want to answer that question emphatically. We know we desperately need your mercy. But like Tyler pointed out last week in his sermon, how quickly we forget the mercy we've been shown and think too highly of ourselves and lord ourselves over other people. Father, would you help us to be the kind of people who display the mercy that we have received to others so that they might receive mercy and they might come and follow you like Bartimaeus did. Or make us catalysts of faith in others. Give us joyful witness in this world so that your kingdom might come and your will might be done and your church might grow and and expand and cover the face of the earth. Lord, remind us of your mercy. Give us joy in the mercy we've been shown. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.